What's our response in the face of danger? What's our response in the face of crisis? When we talk about Daniel, Daniel is the book of Daniel. We're looking at not only the sovereignty of God, but how am I supposed to react in Babylon? How am I supposed to carry myself in the world that I live in? And so when crisis comes, this is, this is the epitome of crisis. This is death. <laughs> and not death like I got old, I lived a good life. No, my man was 17 years old, he ain't done nothing yet. And about to, his life is about to be slaughtered right then and there. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for January 7th, 2018. Today, Pastor Olu brings us a message called World Engines, Daniel. Biblical Response to Crisis, Part 1. And so when crisis comes, when disaster comes, when catastrophe comes, while I am a child of God, a follower of Christ in Babylon, what is my biblical response? What is my example to follow? My example to follow is to reply or to respond with prudence and discretion. Pastor Olu tells us the story of Daniel and how he used prudence and discretion when his very life was at stake. Pastor Olu also says that prudence means to critically and cautiously judge what is correct and proper. He says that discretion is using tact after resolving to do something after deliberation. Now he challenges us as followers to take Daniel's example. Now he'll be reading from the book of Daniel, so grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. Daniel chapter 2. So if you remember, we've been going through Daniel and we talked about how Daniel was a young man. Daniel was about 13, 14 years old during this time. And we ended chapter 1, Daniel had gone through his three years of studying in Babylon. And, you know, he turned out better than the rest of the others. He and his friends turned out better. And so they gave him a high position. And so when we start Daniel chapter 2, this is in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. It's about three years later after Daniel was captured with his friends and brought to Babylon. So Daniel's about 16, 17 years old, maybe around 18, somewhere around 17 years old at this time. So think about that. He's still a young man, a child, okay, during this time. What happens is, and if you read Daniel chapter 2, I'll just start off reading the first verse. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell you what, king, tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. King answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, please, and we'll show you an interpretation. The king answered and says, I know with certainty that you are trying to stall or to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words with me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing 
of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. It's a crazy verse right there. The scenario that's going on is that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of the world, the known world during that time, had a dream. The dream shook him. The Bible says he was anxious, he couldn't sleep anymore, he was tossing and turning. It messed him up, totally messed him up. And so, as it was patterned during that time, he called the dream chasers, <laughs> or the dream enchanters to come. And what used to happen if somebody had a dream, they call these guys, the guys come in, tell us what you're dreaming. I dream I was standing on the edge of a mountain and I jumped in the water and the water disappeared and it was a bunch of bubbles and then I floated into the sky. And once you tell them the dream, the enchanters would then explain to you what the dream meant. Well, that means blah, 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 blah. What happened was this dream shook Nebuchadnezzar so much that he was like, look, I'm not even going to tell you the dream. I want you to come and tell me the dream. <laughs> tell me what I dreamt. Then tell me what interpretation. So the, the king could have probably had some ideas. You know what? These guys have been lying to me for years. I've been telling them dreams. They've been telling me stuff. This one is so serious. This dream is so big, so serious. I want them to tell me what my dream was. And so he brought it to them, and of course, they could not do it. Now, these guys were enchanters. They were using the occult and witchcraft, and uh, some historians say they were using drugs and different things to help them go into the spiritual world and, and discuss with demons and whatnot. And so they were able to, because the demons do know some stuff, and Satan does know some things, they were able to either manipulate or even get some things right at time as to what these dreams meant. But... The theme of Daniel is God's sovereignty. See, what was going on was that God was trying to tell Nebuchadnezzar something because God was trying to tell the world something. And so this wasn't a regular old dream. This was a specifically sent dream from Jehovah God to Nebuchadnezzar about to explain what was about to go down. And so in this, this wasn't something that he could go to his regular folks to find out about. It was such that they kept asking him, look, look, King, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you interpretation. The king was like, no. You tell me the dream. This went back and forth for a while until the king said, I'll tell you what, if you can't tell me the dream, you're about to get murdered. That's simple. Not only you to stand in front of me, but every magician, every astrologer, every science, every smart guy, every dude who was part of this clan in Babylon is going to die today if you can't tell me what this dream is and then its interpretation. Guess who was a wise man? Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. So if they could not tell him what the dream was, and then it's interpretation, that means that Daniel's about to die, Hananiah was about to die, Azariah was about to die, and Mishael was about to die. Because they were all wrapped up into this. Look with me in verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses in Daniel. They answered the king, there is not a man on earth, watch these words, who can meet the king's demand. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult where there is impossible and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. This is the opportunity where we have to understand that even those heathen pagan Babylonians acknowledge something right then, that the task that was up to them that he was asking to do was impossible. So impossible that only the gods could do it, lowercase g, and the thing about the gods is they don't dwell with us. We, we don't talk to the gods. We, we can't interact with the gods. We don't have a relationship with the gods. And so you're asking us to do something that only the gods could do. And guess what? The gods don't dwell with us. The gods don't come to us. The gods don't communicate with us. We don't have that type of relationship with us. What they were asking for something to do that was very impossible. Enter the sovereign God. 
What we learned in Daniel a couple of weeks ago was that God is sovereign and that God, sovereignty of God means that God is all powerful, omnipotent, all knowing, omniscient and absolutely free and absolutely free to do whatever he wants to do and to work his will, whatever his will is, down to the very smallest detail. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God that Daniel served. And that is the God that's going to show up right now. They asked the king, they pretty much said, King, you're asking us to do the impossible. We can't do it, and we don't know anybody else who can do it. Obviously, nobody in this realm can do it, or nobody in this realm that we normally frequent can do it. This is a good opportunity to get into the hoop and holler and pastorship because he's asking, he said, We can't do the impossible. And so I'd ask you, Do you know somebody who can do the impossible? <laughs> if I had an organ on the side, somebody can play the organ real quick. This is that time. We serve a God who can do the impossible. That's the thing that's crazy about it. We think about all the things that we go through. We think of all the situations that happen in our life. And we think these guys are saying, King, you're asking us to do the impossible. We know somebody who can work the impossible. There's a song one of my favorite gospel artists is James Hall. And he has a song on his album called God Specializes. And the song basically says, God specializes, I would sing it if I could sing, in things that seem impossible he can do anything. Simply trust him and never doubt. God will do what no other power can do. The God we serve, the sovereign God of the Bible, specializes in doing the impossible. See, that's the limitation with the occult. See, they were, they were, they were cool with the occult and talking with demons and getting information here. That's the limitation with that because you can go only so far with that as far as knowledge and wisdom. As a matter of fact, when it comes to all secular knowledge... You can only go so far when it comes to secular knowledge, you're getting secular understanding of things. There are certain things that are in the impossible realm that only the God of the Bible, Jehovah God, Yahweh, can understand, can and does have the power to come through on. God specializes in the impossible. The, the angel told Mary. Remember when Mary said, the angel said, I'm about to, have a, you're about to have a baby. Mary said, how can this happen? I'm not even married. I've never known a man. How can this happen? And she said, with God, all things are possible. Ephesians chapter 3 Verse 20, Paul says, now to him who is able to do, watch this, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Far more abundantly than what we ask and think. So if you can think about that, if you can think about it, that means you ain't going far enough. When it comes to ability, if you can think about it, that means you ain't going far enough. Because Paul said God can do far more abundantly than whatever your weak little human mind can think. And so when we come in a situation, when things enter our lives, when situations come, when problems exist, when crises come, if you can think about the pain, then guess what? That's nothing to God. The Bible says that he thinks far abundantly more than he has to think with that power. In Matthew 19, 26, this is Jesus talking and he's talking to a young man. It's a verse you've heard before. Talked about how can I get into the kingdom of God? So Jesus talks about the camel going through the eye of the needle. But then he says in verse 26, but Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Go back to Daniel chapter two. What's happening here is the gospel message enters Daniel. It's always interesting to see the gospel message in the Old Testament. Here's where the gospel message enters Daniel and God sets the stage for what he's doing. 
You see, Daniel starts off what we call the time of the Gentile, what theologians call the time of the Gentiles. That's when the Gentiles were running everything. So you got the, the, the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians. You got the Greeks who about to come through with Alexander the Great. Then you got the Romans. It's called the time of, of the Gentiles. And this is about to start off. And so what God is doing right now, he's dropping in the gospel message. You see, what they said and the Babylonian worldview was that there's this God realm where the gods exist. And then there's this earth realm where we exist. And there's a separation there. And there's a separation there. And what we have to do as men, in order for us to do it, we have to go up and try to reach into the God realm to actually communicate with them. We have to try to step up and to ask the gods or to reach into the God realm for that communication to go. But what we see, man's way never works. And what happens is what God is showing us here is that in this time, that Babylonian worldview won't do. When man tries to do it on his own, stay in his realm and try to reach up to the God, it never works. What Jesus is showing here and what God is showing here in the biblical worldview is that the sovereign God, that all-powerful, all-knowing, absolutely free God, the sovereign God enters our world and rescues us. That's what the gospel message is. The gospel message is the creator of the universe didn't just stay up in his realm. He actually left his home, left his realm and came down and entered into our world. What they said was, hey, the only one that can do this are the gods. And the gods, they don't dwell with us. They don't enter our world. They don't have flesh. They're not down here with us. But what God is want to show them is that the God of the Bible is the one true God. And that sovereign God has entered our human world for the purposes to rescue us from what we're going through. The cool thing about it is that the one true God and what they're about to see, what Daniel does later, what they're about to see is that the one true God does desire to communicate with us. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God, watch this, so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. See, the thing about God is he wants to be near with us. We don't have to go out searching for him. He wants to, he desires to be near to us such that he entered our world. That's Old Testament. Look, uh, say in the Old Testament, look um, to Amos, book of Amos, minor prophet, Amos chapter three, verse seven. So you're talking about the fact that God, our God, the creator of the universe has a strong desire to communicate with us. Amos three, seven says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So God has the ability to communicate and God wants to communicate. And the Bible said that God doesn't do anything without communicating to us through his prophets. And so the God of the Bible, the sovereign God is not what the gods that the Babylonians are thinking about. Hey, they're in that realm up there. They're separate from us. No, the God of the Bible wants to come down and communicate with us. As a matter of fact, not only does he want to communicate with us, the God of the Bible has come and is dwelling with us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. By the way, we just learned knowledge about God. The fact that God desires to communicate with us, okay? We also learn that God came down and entered our world. All right, Isaiah 57, 15 says this. 
For thus says the one, capital O-N-E, talking about God. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. His name is holy. Watch this. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the spirit, the heart of the contract. God said the Holy One, Jehovah, says not only do I dwell high in the holy place, but the Bible says that God, the sovereign God, the absolutely powerful God, the absolute knowledgeable God, and the absolutely free God dwells with those whose heart is contrite and has a lowly spirit. God wants to dwell with us. He doesn't want to stay in his realm. He wants to be right there with us as we go through it. In Philippians, I know we're looking at a lot of verses, but I want you to see this because this is important, especially as we set the stage for what Daniel's going through. Two more verses I want to go through. Philippians chapter two. You're familiar with this. This is we call it kenosis or the emptying. It talks about what Jesus Christ do. Not only God wants to communicate with us, not only did God dwell with us, but God specifically did this. He put on, the Bible says, he put on flesh. Remember what the Babylonians said? This is impossible. Only the gods can do this, and they don't dwell in flesh. But the Bible says that our God, our sovereign God, does do that or did do that. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind being you, King James says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was equal with God, but emptied himself. We call that the kenosis, the emptying of himself of his glory. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even the death on the cross. The Bible says that the sovereign God, the creator of the universe, the all wise, all powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, absolutely free God of the universe, the sovereign God, the Bible says, put on flesh. He put on human form. He put on this flesh and he came down so that he could rescue us. So when the Babylonians said this is only for the gods and they don't put on flesh. That was the introduction of the gospel message that God himself was going to come down to put on flesh to interact in our world. In John chapter one, verse 14, Badia went through this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. And I'm sure he's going to be spending a little more time on it as he goes through the, the doctrine of God and the Trinity. But as he showed us last week, verse one says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. So we're talking about God here, the word. The word was God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He was God. He is God. And so we come down to verse 14 and the word God became what? Flesh. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, that's impossible. Only the gods know that and they don't dwell in flesh. But old Babylonians, they do. He does. The Bible says the word became flesh and there's that word dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is the same word used 
for tabernacle. And so when John said that, the Hebrews knew exactly what he was talking about. Remember the tabernacle? And when Moses was walking around and they had the temple and the temple, before they had the temple, they had the tent. It was called the tabernacle. And what they would do, they would march in the desert. And once they get to a spot, they would stop, put up the tent, put up everything. And the Bible says that God, the glory of God, be it in the, uh, the cloud, will come into the tabernacle and rest on top of it because represent the presence of God. He was in that tabernacle, but they would have to pack it up and then carry it somewhere else. And then the presence of God will come down. Where John says that God himself has now tabernacled or pitched his tent with us. He's here. He has come down to this world. Why? To rescue us, to dwell with us. And we have seen his glory, the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. We call that the incarnation. So that's a fancy theologian's word for it. The incarnations, incarnate. That means in the flesh. God. And, and if you really think about that for too long, your brain would explode. Because what you have to think about is that an infinite, almighty, all-powerful, boundless creator of the universe, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Sikhanu, Jehovah Rohi, Jehovah Rapha, put on flesh and came down here for us. To die. This is the love that God has for us. This is why I now should live my life a certain way, because God himself thought me precious enough to come down and wrap himself up in this dirty, filthy thinking flesh to come and take my place on the cross. The Babylonians thought the gods didn't dwell with us, but the God has. And the reason they could say that because their gods didn't. Why? Because their gods didn't exist. But he has been talking about that. They were false gods. They were praying to nobody. It was nobody there. And so they could say that for themselves, that the gods don't exist. We can't talk to them. We don't, we don't deal with them. But what Daniel is going to do right now, God is entering into the world. He's entering into this Babylonian world and say he's about to show up. And I like when somebody says God's about to show up and show out right now. And so this came up because the king was angry. Verse 12, chapter two, back in Daniel. Because the king was very angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought out Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, if you know anything about Babylonian decrees, when the king says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. You remember through Esther when the king said we're going to go out and kill these people? Did the king change his mind? But even the king, once he changed his mind, can't change the decree. Once the decree goes forth, it's happening. And so when Nebuchadnezzar says, OK, guys, I'm tired of this. Go kill all of them. Right then, the executions went. And matter of fact, some uh, theologians say that the killings actually started. When you look at those words in the original language, they actually went from there and started killing folk. They went out and started killing the wise men, killing the magicians, killing all those people, getting to the Hebrews that they select and started went to killing them. And then the Bible says that he came in verse 14 and they sought out Daniel and his companions to kill them. And so Daniel sitting in his house chilling. He hears a knock on the door or they kick the door in and there stands the executioner. He's standing there. I don't know if he had an executioner mask on. I don't know what, what weapon of choice they use. It could have been a sickle. It could have been an axe. It could have been a sword. I don't know what they had. But the executioner's at the door about to do what the king told him to do. Go out and kill these people. And so Daniel and his friends are sitting there and they're like, what's going on? What's, what's the deal? Well, you're about to die. When the impossible comes, when the executioner is at your door, when disaster is imminent. And think about this. A 17-year-old boy, his friends, 
The king has said it's time to die. And he just been through all this nonsense, all this craziness for the past three years, and now it's about to die. It's like, God, really? This is what's about to go down? We're going to go out like this? And this is not even something I did. This is because they couldn't answer the question. This is what's about to happen to us? When the executioner comes to your door, when disaster is imminent, when distress and agony and pain have come, when crisis and catastrophe arises, the question is, what's your response? What's our response? Seventeen O'Daniel looks up from his couch and he sees some men in his door with swords and knives and everything else about to kill him. Verse 14, the Bible says, <laughs> and remember, this is a 17-year-old kid. Think about all that's going on right now. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. The decree went out that it was time to die. They were at the door. The Bible says Daniel's response, his initial response is prudence and discretion. What's our response in the face of danger? What's our response in the face of crisis? When we talk about Daniel, Daniel is the book of Daniel. We're looking at not only the sovereignty of God, but how am I supposed to react in Babylon? How am I supposed to carry myself in the world that I live in? And so when crisis comes, this is, this is the epitome of crisis. This is death. <laughs> and not death like I got old, I lived a good life. No, my man was 17 years old. He done nothing yet. And it's about to, his life is about to be slaughtered right then and there. And so when crisis comes, when disaster comes, when catastrophe comes, while I am a child of God, a follower of Christ in Babylon, what is my biblical response? What is my example to follow? My example to follow is to reply or to respond with prudence and discretion. So what's prudence and discretion? Well, prudence is to be able to critically and cautiously judge what is correct and proper. Two key words there. Critically and cautiously judge what is correct and what is proper. Now remember, you're doing this in the face of disaster. You're doing this in the face of crisis and catastrophe. And so the Bible says that his response was to first critically, that means take some time and begin to think, and cautiously. Bible says, and the guy opened the door and Daniel jumped out with him with a sword and tried to fight him. Now, and Daniel saw him in panic and ran out the house. Now, the Bible said that Daniel looked at the face of crisis or catastrophe in Babylon at 17, 16, 17 years old. And the Bible said he responded with a critical and cautious judgment to figure out what is correct and what is proper to do right now. That word prudence also has the idea of keen and foresighted penetration and judgment. I like that because it's the idea of x-ray vision. You know, Superman, right? Superman got x-ray vision so he can walk up to a building and somebody in there screaming or dying and he can look through the building and see. He can keen, he has keen and foresight. He can look through things and see, hmm. What, what, what's really? I see what's in my face. I see the, 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 I see the soldier at the door. I see the sword in his hands. I see they're about to kill me. But let me look past that and see what's really going on here. That's what prudence is. We need to have x-ray vision when crisis and catastrophe comes in our life. Before we make a decision, we need to have that. The second word there is discretion. The word there is tact. 
That means you resolve to do something after inner deliberation. You know what inner deliberate, you know what deliberate is, right? You're in a courthouse and the jury is sitting in the box and they hear the defense and they hear the offense and the judge say, okay, jury, it's time for you to make a decision. Go in the back and what? Deliberate. deliberate. So they go in the back room and they sit down and say, okay, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And so they deliberate. The word there, tact, has to do with you don't make a decision, you don't do anything until you first have an inner deliberation. That means you get down with yourself and you sit down and look at yourself and you talk to yourself and you say, self, how much should I respond right now? What's cool about this word, in the, in the original language, this word here is the word for to taste. It means literally to taste. And so when we think about it figuratively, it has the idea, it describes the faculty which discriminates and selects what is suitable for a given occasion. You're seeing uh, people get married and they go to a tasting. And so what happens? They come and sit down and uh, the lady comes out and the man comes out and they bring out a whole bunch of different cakes. And they, let me tell hmm, okay, I like that, but that's, that's a little too almondy for me. Let, me. let me try that one. Uh-huh. Mm. Okay, yeah, yeah, but that has coconut and I don't like coconut. Okay, so let me try this one. Mm, yeah, you know that one, but that one might be a little too rich. What are they doing? They're going through each and every one of those situations and they're tasting it and they're thinking and they're discriminating and they're selecting, saying, which one is the best for this particular occasion? What Daniel did was he took time. The Bible says you take time before you react, before you do. You take time and you go through. OK, and before I move, let me try this situation. What happened if I just well up and pop him off in the face? Hmm. No, that probably went in well. What happened if I just cursed him straight out? Mm, no, that, that probably, that don't, that don't taste good. What happened if I just put the silent treatment and I don't say nothing for the rest of the day? Make him look stupid as you're trying to talk to me. Mm, no, that don't work. What happened if I just well off and punch them right in the mouth then take away the iPod, scream at them, and kick them out the house? Mm, I, mm, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. That's what the Bible says. Before I make decisions, not in the face of crisis, in the face of anything, two things. One, am I critically and cautiously determining what's going on? Do I have that x-ray vision? Well, I look through the situation before I decide what I'm going to do. I'm going to look through the situation and try to see what's going to happen on the other side. One, x-ray vision. The second thing, do the taste test. What, is, what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I did that? Hmm. No, that's not good for this occasion. Mm -mm. That was not good. Mm. That's it. That's what I should do for this occasion right now. That's that inner deliberation before we make those decisions. That's an example to follow as believers. That's an example to follow as followers of Christ here, as world engines here uh, in Babylon, what we should do. We need to be critically and cautious, use our x-ray vision, and then perform the taste test before we make the decision. As world engines, as followers of Christ, this is the example to follow. In every crisis, and we describe crisis as a time of intense difficulty, struggle, trouble, or danger. What's your reaction? In sickness, how do we react? In pain, how do we react? Unfortunately, a lot of our reactions are worry and stress, not prudence and discretion, tact. 
We see a situation and immediately we get stressed out. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. These guys sit in my door, I'm about to die. I didn't do nothing. It's not my fault. Okay, how do I get out of this? Now, if I run, probably too late. And we get that anger and that anxiety and that worry and that stress. When the Bible says, as followers of Christ, as world engines, our response to crisis should be that critical and cautious x-ray vision, that inner deliberation, and then the taste test. Should I do that? What should I do? Should I do this? When somebody annoys us, when I'm getting annoyed, somebody just getting on my last nerve, what's my response? That's crisis. That's a struggle. That's a situation. My response when I'm being annoyed should be those same things. I should cautiously and critically x-ray the situation. Okay, now he's getting on my last nerve. Now, why is that happening? Look through the situation. In a deliberation. Okay, Olu, what you going to do in this scenario? And then use the taste test. Should I, should I try this? No, that's not going to work. How about this one? No, that's not right for this occasion, because if I do this, this is going to prompt this to happen, and then it's going to get all up crazy up in here, and then we'll have issues. And so I take my time, and I go through that. When somebody hurts us, when someone does us wrong, when it's someone else's fault, you have issues between brothers and sisters, fights or problems. Before you make that decision, cautious, inner deliberate, x-ray vision, taste test. Problems between parent and child. Get on my last nerve. That's it. I'm about, to, I'm about to go off on them. Chill. What does the Bible say? What's the example from Scripture? The Scripture says what Daniel did when they were about to kill him. Now, now you get to the point where your child is standing when they're about to kill you. That's a whole other thing. But we're talking about in stress, in situation, in problems, in issues, when someone does you wrong, when someone hurts you, when you're annoyed. Follow the example of Daniel in this case. Husband and wife. Nobody gets you on your nerve more than your wife or your husband. When that, when that, that's that love there. That, that emotion is already there. And so when those situations happen, when they're doing something that's just annoying you and it's getting to that point and you're about to go straight off, think about Daniel. What does the Bible say? What is the example that Daniel gave us at 17 years old? At 17 years old? What was his example? How did he respond? My response to my wife should be that. I should take that time and say, okay, I'm going to use my x-ray vision. I'm going to look at this scenario. I'm going to be cautious. That's a magnifying glass. And I'm going to perform the taste test with the inner deliberation. I'm going to take that time before I respond to my wife, before I respond to my husband, before I respond to my child, before I respond, respond to my brother, my sister, before I respond to my boss, before I respond to my family member. Before I respond to this situation, the Bible says prudence and tact. It's funny. And think about it. If this is how our response should be as followers of Christ, how does other people, how would other people rate me on that? How would other people rate you on that? You know, people see you sometimes as your worst, as your best. But on a consistent basis, how would others say, if I were to take a poll with all y'all, Please be nice on the poll. But if I take a poll, all y'all, all the friends that know me, how does Olu respond in the face of crisis? Would I fall into the Daniel category? <laughs> a 70-year-old boy? Or would I fall into some heathenistic category? That's something that we understand why. Because we are world engines. 
My responsibility according to the word of God is to go into Babylon and to make Babylon look like the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God says that my response is critically cautious, inner deliberation, x-ray vision, taste test. What's best for this situation? What would Jesus do in this situation? And don't blame God. Remember people say, well, listen, that's just my, per- I heard somebody say, oh, this is my personality. That's just me. Okay. I, I, I'm just that kind of dude. That's how God made me. No, no, no. Don't, 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 don't blame God on that. Don't, don't, don't blame God. That, that's you. That's your choice. That's what you decide to do. That's how you live it. God would not make you like that to go against what his word says. And so the question is, how do I do that? How do I respond that way? This is not, as you know, a natural reaction to do this. And what blows my mind, and I keep saying it, but 17 years old, what was put into him such that he could respond this way? And we talked about it a, a couple of weeks before. It was the word of God. It was his parents has instilled in him. It was his own study in the word of God. That's what put him in this position. But this is not a natural reaction. It is an unnatural, supernatural, spirit-led reaction from a spirit-controlled person. And so for me to react this way in crisis, in sickness, in death, in hard times, when I'm being annoyed, when someone's done me wrong, for me to react this way as follows Daniel's example requires me to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll turn there. Ephesians 5, 18. Again, Paul says this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. That word filled there has has idea of by means of the spirit. So instead of filled with, it's by filled by means of the spirit, meaning let the Holy Spirit fill you. Let the Holy Spirit control you. We talk about all the time in those situations. My response, my biblical response is to invite God into that situation. I don't like when people say, well, you know what? I'm just going to ask God to help me to be better. I mean, I hear you, but I don't like it because that gives the implication that God is sitting back. I'm not going to do nothing until they ask me to help. When the Bible says God has already done everything for you. Look with me. I'm going to ask you to turn there. Look with me in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 2 Peter part 1, people say, well, you know what? I'm going to ask God to help me be a better person. I'm going to ask God to help me with my temple. I'm going to ask God to help me respond like Daniel did in a situation. And God will help. Yes, he will. But we have to, we can't use that for a crutch. When I, I hear celebrities say this on TV, too. Uh, I won't call nobody names. But you know what? God is, God is still working on me. <laughs> so, you know, I still do some stuff I shouldn't do. But God's still working on me. But you've been saying that for 45 years, B. God been working on you for 30 years? The thing that confused me about that is we're talking about the God who created the universe in seven days. Amen. If he created the universe, the stars, the moons, the planets, everything in seven days, and he's been working on you for 45 years, something wrong. That means that ain't God. That's you. That is you. That's his choices that you are making. So we can't use that for a crutch. God's still working on me. No, you are the problem. And my responsibility is to invite God into the situation so he can do what he said he already did. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says his divine power, talking about God, has granted us, watch this, all things 
that pertain to life and godliness. And so in order for me to live godly, God has already given me all things to do that. I already have it. So I had to ask him, God, I need you to give me strength. No, I already gave you strength. Act on it. God, I need you to give me the power. No, I already gave you the power. Just like I'm standing here with a million dollars to say, here, uh, Janai, here's a million dollars. Go ahead and do what you want. You say, Daddy, but can I have, can I have some money because I need to do such and such? Now, I gave you a million dollars. Yeah, but Daddy, can you, I really want to buy this, this, this thing here, this coat. Can you give me some money to buy the coat? You have a million dollars sitting in your pocket. I know, but can I have a couple dollars to get a coat? That's how stupid that is. Bible says God has already given you everything you need to live godly, to live righteous. Watch this. Through the knowledge of him who called us in his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. God has already given you everything you need to do that. So do that. It's not a, well, I got to wait. He's working on me. Well, you know, I'm just not there yet. No, 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 no. Invite God into your situation. Read the word. Put the word in you so that you may be controlled by the spirit. So when I step out into Babylon, they can see, oh, my goodness. How he act like that? How does she act like that? How does she respond like that in that situation? Oh, because I'm not me. I'm God's hands, his feet, his eyes, his legs. And so when you look at me, like Paul said, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I ain't there yet. I will tell you that. I will say that. (laughs) But Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Why? Because he understood as a world engine, that's my responsibility in this world. We're going to end there. There's so much more that goes on, and I'm glad we're doing this as a series because I can take my time and walk through this. But what I want to leave us with today is two things. One, the sovereignty of God. Understand and understand in your mind that God himself has entered our world for the sole purpose of rescuing us from this world and to uniting us back with him. So because of that, he took on flesh. I want you to understand also that the impossible, whatever your impossible is, that's nothing to God. We serve a God who specializes in impossible. And so when the impossible knocks at your door, when crisis comes in your life, when catastrophe comes in your life, when annoyance comes in your life, when someone does you wrong, when hurt and pain and suffering and confusion comes into your life, don't panic, don't stress, get an anxiety attack. Respond like that 17-year-old kid did who was led by the Spirit of God. And say, you know what, I'm going to cautiously and critically think through this situation. I'm going to use my x-ray vision so I have keen insight into what's going on behind the scene. Then I'm going to perform the taste test. I'm going to deliberate with myself, sit back and say, self, what should we do? Should I do this? Should I do this? Then I respond. Why? Because the Bible says that I'm supposed to be controlled by the spirit and God has already given me everything I need to do that. As we move through this week, as we move through this year, I didn't have a New Year's message, but as we move through this year, Let's try to be godlike in our home, with our family, with our friends, in our workplace, in our school, so we can be that beacon of light to people. Father, we love you. We thank you for this day, God. We thank you for the example of this little boy, Daniel, and what he's about to do, and even what we've seen him doing already, God. I pray, God, that each and every one in the sound of my voice will invite you into their situation, God. We thank you that your word has told us you have already given us everything we need to live a godly life in Babylon. 
So I pray, God, that we would take advantage of what you've given us, God. That we would trust in you, invite you into our situation, put aside our own flesh, put aside our own right to do what we want to do, but we control and be led by you while we're here in Babylon. We thank you for this time, God. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.